The new year is the perfect time to start building credit scores. Because when your credit scores increase, your opportunities do too. Like loan approvals and lower interest rates. Chime makes it easier to keep building your credit with a secured Chime Credit Builder Visa Credit Card. You can use Credit Builder everywhere Visa credit cards are accepted. Chime helps you build your credit score safely by using your own money to make everyday purchases and on-time payments. To apply, just open a Chime checking account with a $200 qualifying direct deposit. And don't stress, there's no annual fee or credit check required to apply and get started. Start building your credit history and finding new opportunities with the secured Chime Credit Builder Visa Credit Card. Get started today at Chime.com build. That's Chime.com build. The Chime Credit Builder Visa Credit Card is issued by the Bancorp Bank N.A. or Stride Bank N.A. members FDIC. Late payment may negatively impact your credit score. Results may vary. The legends are true. Overwhelming power. The sauce of destiny. Yes! The most legendary sauce has arrived as McDonald's transforms into the anime world of Donald's. The greatest flavors unite in all new savory chili McDonald's sauce to make your 10-piece nuggets, fries, and Sprite ultra-powerful. Unlock manga comics with every meal and sit down for a new anime short every week only at McDonald's. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba, go! And participate in McDonald's for a limited time while supplies last. Hi, hello, and howdy, everyone. Welcome to episode 10 of Rotten to the Core. We have covered quite a few rotten people so far, but we have so many more. I'm your host, Josh Waters, and thank you for joining me today. Well, guys, I was trying to think of a good subject for our 10th episode, and I got to thinking, what about those people who are rotten, but we still idolize them? Now, have you ever had a gorgeous piece of fruit, present company excluded, that just made your mouth water as you picked it up, placed it in your mouth, and you take that first juicy bite, only for a foul taste to instantly flood your senses as you realize that beautiful thing was completely rotten inside? That is what I believe we have with our next leading lady on this episode of Rotten to the Core. I love a good villain in movies and books. Give me a gorgeous queen with power, ambition, and a killer wardrobe, and I am on her side faster than you can say yes ma'am. Today's leading lady is just one of those whom I will admit I have a slight obsession with. She may have been rotten to the core, but dang did she look good doing it. She graced screens small and wide with her glamorous, classy, and enchanting skills as an actress. Her shoulders walked into the room five minutes before she did, ladies and gentlemen, Mrs. Joan Crawford. Now, who was Joan? Well, before I get into who Joan was, not only as a person, but as an icon, mother, wife, and celebrity, I want to say that, in my opinion, I would have thrived with her as a mother. No joke. I am slightly obsessed, as I mentioned, with how she managed her life, her style, 
and didn't really ask anyone what they thought of it. I can respect that, and am quite frankly jealous of it. But, as I have said before, life is not all sunshine and rainbows, and there was another side of Joan that some of us may be aware of, thanks to one of her daughter's books, which later turned movie, but others may not know of the rotten misdeeds committed by the star. Joan was born Lucille LeSeur in San Antonio, Texas. It was up in the air whether the year was 1904 or 1905. At the time, birth certificates in Texas were not required until 1908, so she could have gifted herself an extra year or so. In an industry where youth is treasured, I can understand that. After her father left when she was just a baby, her mother remarried a man named Henry Casson, whom she called Dad. He remained married only a few years to her mother, Annabelle Johnson, and it is believed that Henry did sexually abuse Lucille as a child. She stated that she was very close to him and was crushed when he abandoned the family. Price check line one, we need a price check on daddy issues. Join the club girl, we meet on Tuesdays. Now, after Henry skedaddled, it left her mother in dire need of ways to support her family. So she took jobs anywhere she could, moving the family from Texas to Oklahoma to Missouri looking for work, often pulling young Lucille out of school to help her wait tables, do laundry, wire hanger hold up, just saying, and clean for people. This is where the future star would pick up her relentless need for cleanliness and her by the sweat of your brow, attitude towards herself, and later her children. She did later state that there was abuse by her mother as well, often physical and emotional. That just really seems to be the case from just about everybody back then. I mean, even up into my parents' generation. It is astounding to me the amount of all types of abuse that happened and not only families, but God, churches, schools, like who wasn't abused? I mean, all of this trauma just building up through the generations going unresolved. And I mean, it leads to things like having a book written about you called Mommy Dearest. I mean, it just baffles me how unknown it was to me. It's very common to hear anybody older than me. I'm 31. My mom is 54. So when I say my parents' generation, I'm thinking 50s and older. Most of those people were abused, and it's sad. I just I hate that for them. I'm sorry. I'm sorry you were all abused. I wish I could give you all a hug. Well, Lucille even had to work her way through private school from the ages of 9 to 13, waiting on tables and scrubbing floors often receiving harsh punishments for not doing a good job over really any kind of mistake. She did only achieve a sixth grade education, which remained one of her greatest hang-ups through her life. She states that she received her real education in Hollywood. Being a mostly visual learner, she replaced books with watching others' actions and learning what she did and didn't like about their performances. Joan Crawford wasn't born. She was made from very carefully curating and mastering the personas of the people Lucille thought who were the top of their game. Even her name, as you've noticed, was changed, which was honestly very common and still is for celebrities. Look up your favorite celebrities. That's probably not their real name. <laughs> you'd be shocked, honestly, a few of them. Lucille wasn't naturally gifted in singing or dancing, 
but that didn't stop her. She had an ambition like no other, and she knew that her way out of poverty was through show business. She had found a job working as a chorus girl doing the new dance craze, the Charleston, in a chorus line in Chicago. Luckily for her, to master the dance was easy, as you just basically flailed your legs and arms around with a smile on your face. That's also how I dance. How you doing? A producer from New York saw her performing and signed her to perform at the Schubert musical in the chorus line. She started from the second line of the chorus until Mr. Schubert and Harry Rath spotted, tested, and signed her to Metro-Goldwyn-Mayer. This was when she made her way to California. Once off of her train, the first person she met with was a man the studio sent to pick her up. He immediately told her that the studio doesn't usually pick girls like her, stating that they usually opt for tall, gorgeous, young showgirls. Now, this was a shock to me, but Joan Crawford was only five foot four. Just the way she appears and acts on the silver screen makes her, to me, appear that she was around seven to 100 feet tall. I know they have tricks that they can use with the camera, but I never imagined she was so small. Watching her in the films that I have, the energy she cast out is of a giant woman, and five foot four, I just, I don't know how all of that was contained within her. She made a few movies under the name Lucille Lasseur, but studio executives hated the name, stating that it reminded them of the sewer. With my lisp, there's not much difference either. There was a contest placed in a magazine called Name the Starlet, and the name Joan Crawford was chosen as the winner. She ended up actually hating her new name as it reminded her of Crawfish. You can't win for losing. They hated her real name, she hated her new name. (laughs) Executives hated her broad shoulders too, but chose to accentuate them even more with shoulder pads. That's where those big old shoulders came into play. I love them. The persona of Joan Crawford slowly became a reality as she would study her favorite co-stars and utilize their skills, mannerisms, and the makeup tricks that they used. In 1925, she started to work on screen for MGM. She starred in several silent films during this period. A prolific and long-lasting film career was to follow, with Crawford ultimately going on to star in more than five dozen films. She took on talking roles with projects like Hollywood Review in 1929 and Grand Hotel in 1932. And her dancing skills were promptly displayed with Fred Astaire in the 1933 hit Dancing Lady. Clark Gable was also featured and was a reoccurring co-star in works like Possessed in 1931 and Strange Cargo in 1940. Now, I did just say that her dancing skills were promptly displayed with Fred Astaire, and I mentioned earlier that she was not a good dancer. When she was signed to MGM, they basically put her through Starlet Boot Camp. She was given singing, dancing, makeups, like basically every type of lesson you can think of on how to look, appear, have any type of talent, they give them. They would sign all of these young Starlet, as many as they could get, and then throw them in with movies with men who were already had a name for themselves and just throw them, throw them, make a movie, movie after movie. And then after so many, they got enough notoriety that, oh look, now they're a star. The only problem was there were so many starlets that they would do this to that they really didn't have longevity in their careers, most only having one to two years in movies or any type of film. 
before being married and never being seen again in film. So for her to have a career that lasted as long as hers did for decades was just really astounding. Crawford was a major top-earning star of the 1930s, though by the end of the decade, her pictures were meeting with limited success. She rallied again with a woman's face in 1941 before leaving MGM and signing with the Warner Brothers, eventually garnering the lead role in 1945's Mildred Pierce, about a mother who rises from humble beginnings to become a successful restaurateur. That film received several Academy Award nominations and Crawford won for Best Actress. She would receive two more Oscar nominations over the years, one for her role as a schizophrenic nurse in another film by the name Possessed, 1947, and the other as a playwright in the thriller Sudden Fear in 1952, which she'd also produced. She became known for her steadfast devotion to her career and a willingness to adapt to different vehicles while cultivating a fan base. In 1955, she became involved with the Pepsi-Cola Company, of all places, through her marriage to company president Alfred Steele. After his death in 1959, Crawford was elected to fill his vacancy on the board of directors, but was forcibly retired in 1973. Though garnering a series of notable roles, by the late 1950s, Crawford's career had grown quiet only to be revitalized yet again with the 1962 horror classic, Whatever Happened to Baby Jane, co-starring Betty Davis. Crawford subsequently starred in several other thrillers and did some television work, such as a guest appearance as herself on The Lucy Show. She also penned the 1971 memoir, My Way of Life, before making her bow out of the industry she adored for much of her lifetime. All right, here's where we get to the rotten part. As we learned earlier, Joan didn't have a close family built on love, something she deeply craved. She was married four times with three marriages to actors, one of whom was Douglas Fairbanks Jr. In 1956, she wed Alfred Steele, the chairman of Pepsi-Cola, and after his death, she joined their board of directors. I will note she became the first woman to do so. So, women's rights. And then she went on to be a spokesperson on behalf of the company until her forcible retirement. Joan desperately wanted children, and after a lot of red tape, favors, and crossing state lines to Las Vegas, she would end up adopting four children. Christina Crawford, Christopher Crawford, and twins Cindy and Kathy Crawford. Now, this is where the rotten comes into play. As you are aware, at least in some measure, of Mommy Dearest. If you have read the book or watched the movie, you know some of the abuse Joan cast upon her two oldest children, specifically her oldest daughter, Christina. From being jealous of any attention they received, to beating Christina with a wire hanger and ripping apart her bedroom as a child, it is clear that Joan has some deep issues that no matter how much money or achievement of her wishes she got, there was still a lot of rage and anger inside this woman. Now, Christina stated in interviews later on herself that she did love her mother, and there were some tender times in her upbringings. She did respect, once she was a woman, an adult, that her mom didn't want them to be raised as spoiled Hollywood brats and for teaching them how to survive in the real world outside of the Hollywood bubble. 
Her youngest children, the twins, Cindy and Kathy, both have stated that Christina is flat out lying about their mother and that they had never witnessed any abuse that was mentioned in the book. The tell-all book was released the year after Joan passed away and leaving both Christina and Christopher nothing in her final will. I can honestly see both sides of this. I can definitely see how someone with Joan's trauma and just her anal retentiveness and desire for everything to be beautiful, I can see her getting angry at some kids. I mean, kids are messy, kids are loud, they don't listen. I mean, I do not want kids for this very reason. So you're a bigger woman than I am, Joan. Good for you. You've got four kids. And I mean, they survived into adulthood. So that's more than I ever want to handle. Those who knew the actress best say that she was incredibly warm, caring, and considerate of other people. But did they really know the real Joan? We all know that sometimes what people see at home is a lot different than what they show others. She was a leading actress of her time, and it's safe to say it would have been very easy for her to portray and act around everyone she didn't fully trust, which honestly seemed to just be everyone. I think maybe she genuinely loved Christina the most, which is why she was subjected to the true Joan, along with every trauma, every hurt, and addiction that was thrown her way just as she was trying to grow as a child. Joan did have a drinking problem that increased with the years, probably to cope with the demands and losses of being an actress and her own trauma, and just trying to stay afloat and relevant. Christina Crawford would state that she became aware of the increase in drinking because the more she drank, the more she seemed to despise her daughter, often leading to altercations, or once a full-out choking match with Joan trying to strangle her. Christina had a genuine fear that if you made mommy mad enough, that she knew exactly how to make you disappear. Just imagine that fear as a child, having that mindset at such a young age that, oh, if I'm not good enough, then she'll just throw me away and erase every bit of existence of me. Bless her heart. I found a few quotes of Joan that honestly, I think just kind of give us a picture of her genuine self. There were a lot of quotes to choose from. These are the ones that just stuck out to me as this feels like the real her. The Joan inside has come out and this is her saying it. This first one, my God, how horrible. Love is a fire, but whether it's going to warm your hearth or burn down your house, you can never tell. God bless them all. I mean, God bless your soul, Joan, and the kids. You're alive. This next one, I put on there mainly for the wire hanger thing. It did bring a chuckle to my mind. (laughs) Care for your clothes like the good friends they are. I laughed because I can just hear her telling this to young baby Christina, like, repeatedly. Care for your clothes like the good friends they are. No wire hangers. And probably the hundredth time she goes into the closet and, oh look, after I've said this quote repeatedly, a wire hanger, wire hanger. Sorry, I can't help myself. Well, we can skip childhood because I didn't have any. Not one goddamn moment of the good ship lollipop. I started this podcast episode thinking this woman is rotten to the core, I'm not gonna like her, and I'm not saying I'm glad that she did all of this, of course, but I just, my heart breaks for her and her children and just 
that whole family. I mean, we sit here and we watch these celebrities and we're, oh, they have all this money. They have all these nice things. And you just never know what's going on behind closed doors. And this really opened my eyes to, you just have to be happy with your own self. That no matter what you achieve and the money you make and the nice shiny little baubles that you collect and gather dust on your shelves, if you're not happy with yourself, your life is not going to be happy. (laughs) And you're going to make other people's lives unhappy. Exhibit A, Joan Crawford and her children. Another quote, I've always known what I wanted, and that was beauty in every form. And then this one is basically her final words. Damn it, don't you dare ask God to help me. That was her final words, and the maid who was with her stated that she started to pray for Joan as she knew that she was passing. Now Joan hated for anyone to show her pity and became upset by the prayers for that reason. I don't think it was a, he ain't got time for me, don't waste your time to pray type of mentality. It was, hell no, you are not showing me pity on my deathbed. Don't you pity me, save it for someone that needs it. That's my thinking. Being known for always looking her best, as Joan became older, her public appearances became less and less. She couldn't stand the thought of someone snapping a picture of her and forever being remembered as a wrinkled old woman. She had masterfully created her image to perfection, and she was not going to be seen as whom Joan Crawford used to be. She wanted everyone to remember her during her more youthful prime. Close friends of hers at the time have stated that they would often invite her over for small, intimate dinners, but each time she would turn them down. She became obsessed after a terrifying phone call that someone was going to kill her and immediately increased security measures in her New York apartment. Upon her death, she had stopped taking visitors besides the few staff that she needed for her care. Joan Crawford died of cardiac arrest on May 11, 1977 in her apartment with one maid there for comfort. Now, I didn't delve too far into this rabbit hole. I will listen to conspiracy theorists, but I'm not deep on them. You can make yourself believe anything is true, so I found this out, and I'm going to put it here and make your own assumptions. I'm still not sure how I feel about it, but I honestly don't think I believe it. But friends and conspiracy theorists believe that the actress committed suicide. Her body was cremated, so further investigation couldn't be done. They state that she started preparations early starting in February by giving her possessions away, even her beloved Shih Tzu, whom she sent to live in the country with friends. Wait, I hope to God. My mom also said that one of our dogs was going to the country. I didn't learn until many years later that she was put down. Hope they didn't just put that poor dog down because she was dying. I hope it went to the country. Now, what legacy did Joan leave behind? I put a lot of thought into this. Being 31 years old, my first memories of Joan were from Mommy Dearest. I knew her as a horrible, pretentious woman who abused her children and only cared about looking good. While some of this is true, I have to say my stance on her has become more sympathetic. This woman rose from nothing by literally working her fingers to the bone. She maintained a career as an actress for decades when the average one of woman was just a few short years. She wanted a family and fought the system and ended up adopting four children as a single woman. That did not happen, especially at that time. She was strict, disciplined, and tough, 
but also appeared to be caring and giving to this other side of her. Often speaking with fans and crew members with respect and adoration while filming, she didn't like to give her problems to other people. Often keeping conversations, even with friends, light and upbeat. She believed that you won't keep friends if you burden them with your problems. I literally said that to my therapist recently. Oh my God. Am I Joan Crawford? No, but no, I did literally say that to my therapist. What the heck? I'm sorry, I did not catch that as I was writing it. Oh, heavens. Preferring to be a friendly voice to them rather than the usual woe is me mentality that a lot of people possess. But you make your own conclusion. I believe sometimes someone can be rotten to the core, but I still feel for the way they became rotten. All the trauma and everything that led them to those actions, that's what I feel for. I'm not necessarily saying, oh, let's all forgive this woman who abused her children. When I feel sympathy for these people, I'm picturing the young little girl, Joan, who was experiencing the trauma. And that's who I think of when I think of sympathy is for the little kid inside of us all. That's who I weep for when I hear stuff like this. I think that Joan learned from a young age to push away love because she thought it either didn't exist or only led to heartbreak. I can understand that with that mindset, how raising children would be a lot to mentally process. I mean, if you don't honestly believe that love exists and you have children who aren't biologically yours, to me that doesn't make a difference. But from women that I've spoken of who have adopted and etc., you love that baby as it's yours. But there is a difference between an adopted baby and one that you physically push out of your body. I mean, I don't know Joan's mind and I don't know what she was thinking with all of that, but heaven's helper. <laughs> I think that the more she felt love for the children, maybe the more she became afraid of losing that, causing her to self-sabotage and end up doing the thing that she tried to avoid in the first place. The damage to her public image when she was labeled box office poison in her later career didn't hurt her nearly as much as the humiliation she felt by being deserted by all those she had loved and trusted. During all those years, there was never enough success, money, or fame to fill that void that remained within her. She seemed to carry the pain in a secret place and never really touched it. No amount of loving ever erased it and she developed belligerence about life that everyone was destined to hurt her. We may never know the complete story of her life, abuse, and true intentions, but this woman has earned her place in history, good and bad. I am Josh Waters, and I thank you again for joining me today on Rock to the Core. I hope you enjoyed learning about our leading lady as much as I did, and possibly walk away with a broadened perspective about who she was. If you would like to stay up to date on current episodes of Rotten to the Core, or you have suggestions for future ones, please follow and like us on Facebook at It's Rotten to the Core, Instagram at It's Rotten to the Core, Twitter at Rotten in History, or go over to itsrottentothecore.com. Again, thank you so much for listening to me today, and farewell, darling.
Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. When you visit Arizona, time is measured in moments, not minutes. Like the moment your work stress disappears as you kayak through the canyons. Or the moment you discover the life-changing effects of prickly pear chocolate. But nothing beats the moment you see the Grand Canyon for the very first time. Visit a new state of mind. Learn more at hereyouareaz.com.